Lord Jesus, that is our prayer, that you would take us, everything that we are, everything that we have, and make it all yours, because everything we have is from you, and we want to offer everything that we have back to you. So now as we open your word, would you please open our hearts? And Father, would you somehow by your spirit work even through the hesitancy, the stubbornness of our wills to help us to hear your word and to do it with great joy. We pray in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at what it means to have a generous joy. And this morning, we continue with that as well as next week, looking at what it means to be generous and why should we be generous. One of the most generous people that I have ever met is a woman named Priscilla. Priscilla lives in a small village in Uganda. She is now elderly, has always lived in a very simple mud home. When I first arrived in that village in 1984, my mud house was next to hers. In the morning, she would bring over a little cup of tea for me, often with a banana. Priscilla never had much. And yet she is one of the most generous people I have ever met. There's a stalk of bananas in that picture. That's a kind of banana that is raised in Uganda. It's called matoke. It's the staple food of most Ugandans. Priscilla had almost no way to turn that into currency. But she was constantly bringing from her field stalks of matoke into the church, giving it to the Lord before she took anything for herself. Her face radiated joy. The last time I was in Uganda, just a few years ago, I had my family with me, and one of my greatest joys was to take my children, who she considers to be her grandchildren, and sit with Priscilla. Why does she radiate joy? Because she has learned that generosity brings joy. The exact inverse is something I read this week. A Hollywood actor, if I were to tell you his name, all of you in this room would know him. Being interviewed said this, nobody in my family is happy. It was my first realization that success and money don't mean happiness. His whole family is torn apart. His children have everything. No one is happy. So, in America, we, we talk about unalienable rights life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not happiness, the pursuit of 
happiness. But that pursuit is like a dream. We even refer to the American dream. And people who we would say must have gotten that dream, they're still pursuing that dream. It never satisfies. A prime example of that is Andrew Carnegie. He grew up in Scotland in a very poor family. His father went bankrupt and actually had to start begging for food and basic materials from his friends. Andrew was horribly embarrassed. Their family immigrated to the United States. Andrew wanted to pursue that American dream, and as you all know, he became a mogul, a financial mogul, an industrial mogul. Last year, I was speaking in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, and I was in Pittsburgh. I went to the Carnegie Mellon University, walked through it, and one of those first old buildings, one that Carnegie himself designed, is designed to look like a factory. His goal was that when students came into that building to study, they would get the idea of what a factory was and how you can make so much money in this country if you will just put your mind to it. But Andrew Carnegie eventually wrote an essay. Listen to his words. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. So where is that pursuit of happiness? How can we find it? Scripture tells us that generosity brings joy, which is far deeper, far richer, far more long-lasting than simple happiness. Two weeks ago, Gar walked us through how we have a generous God. And when we grasp the, the truth of the generosity of our God, generous in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as he creates the world, Genesis as he, uh, uh, ge generous, generous as he gives everything in that garden to Adam and Eve, all the way through giving us his son, the gospel that we've just celebrated around the Lord's table. We have a generous God, and when we grasp the generosity of our God, we develop, as Lake showed us last week, an acquired taste for generosity, an acquired taste to be generous like God, to imitate Him. And what we see this week is that when we, when we acquire that taste, it results in great joy. When we grasp the generosity of our God, we develop an acquired taste for generosity that results in great joy. We're going to read this morning from First Chronicles. It's a book that we don't often spend much time in. The page numbers are there if you're using the Bible in the seat in front of you. One of the Bible is large print, so it's a little further down in that Bible. Some of our Bibles in the seats are not large print. Two-page numbers, First Chronicles chapter 29. As you open your Bibles, let me just give you a little bit of background about Chronicles. For us, it's divided into two books, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. The Hebrews, Scriptures really see it as one. 
In the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, which is the exact same as ours, the exact same books in the Old Testament that we have are in the Hebrew Bible, but they organize them differently. Chronicles is the last one, not Malachi. It ends with Chronicles. This first part of Chronicles ends with this stunning passage that we're going to look at this morning. Why was it written? When was it written? Well, it was written towards the end of the the chronological time of the Israelites in Jerusalem before the coming of Jesus, just before those silent years. It was written after the Israelites had come back from, from Babylon in exile. Most likely Ezra wrote the Chronicles. Remember, we just saw last week, the Israelites had come back from exile. They settled into Jerusalem. They're desperate. The, the, Jerusalem has been destroyed. They're trying to rebuild. They begin to rebuild their homes. They realize that they've got to have something to eat. They've got to have a house to live in. And God sends Haggai to say, your priorities are out of whack. Why are you living in your own paneled houses when the house of the Lord is not even yet finished? They had to acquire the taste for generosity to give back to God what God had given them up to to them. God sent Nehemiah to help them build a wall. God sent Ezra to lead them into a spiritual revival. And it's as part of that revival that we have this book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, the first section of this tome that Ezra puts together ends with with chapter 29. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We often think of ourselves as a generous people, but let me just put this in context so that we we look at things in reality. In many ways, we might find ourselves in a similar place to the Israelites in Jerusalem, having left slavery, they're back home, trying to get their lives together. We as Americans are seemingly perpetually pursuing this American dream from rags to riches, and every generation starts it over again. We just keep keep working at this. Studies have shown that every generation feels that they are very generous. In fact, the most young generations today, those 18 to 28, feel that they are the most, genera- the most generous of all the generations. The truth is none of us in this room are as generous as the generation that lived during the Great Depression. Studies show that none of us give Percentage-wise, as much generation, not individually, but generationally, none of the generations alive today give as large a percent of their, give their, their salary, their income, as those who lived during the Great Depression when we had a 25% unemployment rate. How have we lost the beauty of generosity? With it, we've lost the joy that comes with it. You see, giving gives joy. Giving gives joy. That's what we see in chapter 29. The first nine verses are a picture of generosity. We're going to move quickly through these. I would love to read this whole chapter. We're not going to have time to read the whole chapter, but... Begin with me. I hope you have your Bibles open now. Chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles, beginning with verse 1. And David the king said to all the assembly, he's actually installing Solomon as king to follow him. 
Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. He's talking about building a temple. He wants Solomon to build this temple that he wanted to build. God said, you're not the one to build it. Your son will build it. So David is preparing as he installs Solomon as king for this temple. Verse 2, so I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. How much did David give? As much as he could. As much as he was able, as much as I am able. Here's the first principle. That's the picture of generosity. As much as, not just a little bit, not what's extra, as, as Lake was pointing out last week, not what's left over at the end of the month, but as much as we possibly can. That was David's pattern. Now, he, he says, I gave as much as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze, iron, wood, precious stones, colored stones, marble. He lists all these things in verse 2. If you go back to chapter 22, we're told that David had actually set aside, it seems in the budget of Israel, money for this. David was not running Israel at a deficit like we do. He had a big surplus in his budget, and he set it aside for his son to, to run, to, to build this temple. But look at verse 3. David says, besides the budget that I have as king, moreover, in addition to all of that, I have provided for the holy house, I have a, I have a treasure of my own. So this is his personal money treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of my God. And then David begins to list 3,000 talents of gold. That is the equivalent today of $6.3 billion. $6.3 billion with a B out of his private money. This is not state coffers. I've already talked about that, David says, but this is my private money. And then he talks about the silver that he gave. Oh, by the way, the gold is from Ophir, the very best quality gold. 7,000 talents of refined silver. That is 262 tons of silver. His personal silver. He says, I've given as much as I can. Not the extra. Not the leftovers. Not even 10%. You know, we say, is it, do you really have to give 10%? David says it's nothing about 10%. I'm going to give everything I can. Why? Because of my devotion to the Lord, he said. And then in the verses that follow, he challenges the people. Look at the end of verse 5. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? David says, this is what I've done. Who among you is willing to offer? I'm not going to demand it. I'm not going to tax you. I'm not going to require it. I want it to be willing. But who will give willingly to the Lord? And so the leaders, the elders, the commanders, verses 6, 7, the officers, and all the people begin to give. Yes, we give our time. We give our energy to the Lord. We give our service to the Lord. But we give our treasure, our money. 
We don't talk about that in church very often. Truth is, I don't like to preach about this. Truth is, the elders asked me to preach about this because they realize I don't like to. <laughs> we are called to give of our money because our money competes for our affection. This is how Paul put it to Timothy. Chapter 6, verse 1 of 1 Timothy. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's not money that is evil. It's the love of money. But, but money competes for our affections. And what is its result? The end of that verse they have pierced themselves with many pangs, the reverse of what happens in chapter 29 of First Chronicles, where they are overwhelmed with joy. They are filled with pain. They are filled with discouragement. Verse 9 of chapter 29 says, Then the people rejoiced because they have been, had, been, had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Giving gives joy. But the love of money pierces our hearts with many pangs. The Bible contains about 500 verses talking about prayer and faith has more than 2,000 verses that talk about money because the Lord knows money competes for our affection. 40% of Jesus' parables are about money because Jesus knows that money competes for our affection. Our use of money reveals where our heart is. And so David says, Lord, help the people to pursue you and your heart. We're going to see that in just a moment. David says it's when they give their money that they're also giving their hearts to you. They're to give from a willing heart, not out of obligation. David said in verse 5, who then will offer willingly to the Lord? Verse 9, the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, not guilt-driven, just because they wanted to. C.S. Lewis once said, the only things we can keep are the things that we give to God. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money competes for our hearts. And if that's where our thoughts is, if that's where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. And God wants our heart. A picture of generosity is giving as much as you can willingly with no compulsion. But what is the source of generosity? The source is the, the middle section of this chapter. 
and it is so crystal clear. The source of generosity is God. It's all His. Everything is His. Look at verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of the assembly, and David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Now, verse 11, listen to how many times the word yours is here. He's talking to God. Everything belongs to God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth is whose? Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. David's king, but he says, yours is the kingdom of the Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Verse 12, both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. So when we are honored by people, God actually allowed us to be honored by people. When we have wealth, God gave us that wealth. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. If any of us have a good reputation, if any of us have done well in business, if any of us have been able to get a good education, it's all from Him. It's all His. Verse 13, and now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. It's all His. Abraham Kuyper, who was once prime minister of the Netherlands, famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not one square inch that is not his. What does that mean? The economy of the United States, Jesus says, it's mine. I give it to you. The stock market, Jesus says, it's mine. Your bank account and my bank account, Jesus says, it's mine. There's not one square inch of anything on this world that is not his. But here's the beauty of it. He is generous. He's given it all to us. We have a generous God. That's what Gar was preaching about. And we want to acquire that new taste for generosity that Lake was teaching, teaching us about. And when we do, we will overflow with joy. You see, we give him what is already his. Look at verse 14. Who am I? What is my people? That we should be able to thus to offer willingly. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. <laughs> Who are we? Uh, we're not giving you anything that's not already yours. You gave it to us. We're just giving it back to you. And then verse 15 is so important. We're strangers before you and sojourners as all of our fathers were. Our days are on earth are like a shadow. There is no abiding. We're just moving through here. That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here. This isn't even your home. I was reading a book this week by a, name, a man named Andrew McNair, and he told this story. He's a young man. He's still young. He's about 30 years old who became a multimillionaire very, very quickly. And he, he said, after we had gotten all this money, my wife and I bought a new home. We went on a vacation to Savannah, Georgia, and we went down the streets. We were going into these, all these stores that sell very old, classic furniture. And we were picking out a table for our house and all this stuff. We said, he said, we went, we shopped until the stores closed. 
We had an Airbnb, a room in an Airbnb or a bed and breakfast. And so we got there so late, but there was a self-check-in. And so we did the self-check-in. We walked up to our room in this old Victorian home. We unlocked the door. It was empty. There wasn't a bed in the room. There was... They were renovating the house, and by mistake, they had given us the wrong room, one under renovation. He says, my wife joked, and she said, well, we just bought all this furniture. Why don't we bring it up to this room? That would be foolish, right? You don't take all of your furniture for your real house and put it in a hotel room. That's what we're doing when we pile up for ourselves, when we amass for ourselves stuff here on earth. This is not our home. Why are we storing it up here? We're going to go somewhere and live forever. And Jesus says, pile it up there. Give to the kingdom. That's what matters. All things come from you, and from your own have we given back to you. And so we learn to say when we walk into our house, God, this is your house. When we get into our car, God, this is your car. I'm borrowing it today. We learn to say when we check our bank account, Lord, you gave me this money. Now what am I supposed to do with it? How much of it should I be giving back to you? Remember when you gave an allowance to your children? Do you remember sometimes you'd give your kids an allowance and then they would go out on your birthday and they'd buy something for you with your money? But they're so excited to give it to you. And how did you feel as a parent? You loved it. It's your own money, but you loved it. That's what we do. When we take what God has given us and we give it back to him, it brings him joy and it brings us joy. Everything we have is his, and we're simply giving back to him. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name It comes from your hand, and it's all your own. It never was ours. Brothers and sisters, again, I was reading two weeks ago in a book that if the Christian people who claim to be believers in the United States even gave one-tenth, which would be a minimum, if those who claim to be believers gave one-tenth, We would feed all the poor people in the world. We wouldn't need the United Nations. We would send missionaries to every part of the world that hasn't yet received the gospel immediately, just like that. Why don't we? Because we haven't learned the joy of generosity. We're accountable for how we use God's stuff. It's all His. And the greatest joy comes when we give it back. Verses 17 to 22 talk about the joy that they received. Look at at these verses, just a a few words out of them. Verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. God has pleasure when we behave as we should. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. Now I have seen your people who are present here. They're offering freely and how? Joyously. All of these things. They're filled with joy. Look, look down. At, we could re- keep reading, but look down at verse uh, 20. 
David said to the assembly, bless the Lord your God. All the assembly, bless the Lord, the God of our fathers. And they bowed their heads. They paid homage to the Lord and to the king. They worshiped God. Verse 21, they offer a whole bunch of bulls and goats and rams and lambs. Verse 22, and they ate and they drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. They were filled with joy. Why? Giving back to God what is already His produces joy. Giving gives joy. And when we give to God from what He's given to us before we spend it for ourselves, so as soon as we receive our salary or our benefits or our whatever it is, we give to God before we start saving for ourselves, before we start spending on ourselves instead of the leftovers, you know what that does? It undercuts the ability of us to fall in love with that money because it's gone before we can play with it. It puts our priorities in the right place. When we grasp the generosity of our God, we develop an acquired taste for being generous that results in great joy. Our hearts will follow our money, and our money reveals where our heart is. Father God, we bow before you, so thankful that these truths are all over your word. We pursue happiness in our country. We say it's an unalienable right written into our Declaration of Independence. And yet it always seems to be elusive. It always seems to be a dream, and we keep dreaming about it. And yet your word has told us that real joy comes from being generous, just like you have been generous to us. Everything we have is already yours, and we want to give back to you. So, Father, this week, I pray that those of us in this room who are your children would take seriously this question. Who are we? That we should give back to you out of this abundance. None of it belongs to us anyway. So, Father, help us to realize that if we want joy, we need to imitate you. You've been generous to us. Teach us the joy of generosity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.